0: My dear friends in Christ, the theme for today's retreat is the Evangelical Council's Poverty, Chastity, and Obedience. So I commend you for foregoing the beautiful weather, the World Cup, and whatever other things may have been tempting you away to come here and listen to a priest speak about why you should be poor, chaste, and obedient. As we, as we begin this day, let's make a deal. I will address couples, but also husbands in particular and wives in particular. So yes, wives, I will speak to your husbands. And, wife, and husbands, yes, I will speak to your wives. Uh, and since I will be doing that, there is no need for you to nudge one another or look knowingly at the other or any such thing in order to convey your point. (laughs) Years ago, a friend of mine hosted a talk, and it was the Evangelical Council's poverty, chastity, obedience. Are you serious? And that might be your response as well. We know that men and women religious vow these three things. They make a radical commitment to live poverty, chastity, and obedience. But the church has always been clear that these three evangelical councils, we call them, are are meant for all the faithful, not just for men and women religious. We are all meant to strive to live these. What is their purpose? The commandments of God seek to remove whatever is uh, contrary to, to charity. Whatever is incompatible with it. But the counsels are meant to remove what hinders us from growing in love. And so they are not burdens or just impositions. But they are things that we strive to live so that we can live charity better. And within the context of marriage, that means so that you can live your marriage marriage vows more deeply, profoundly. And they correspond to sort of our threefold disordered attachment to possessions. We like things to pleasure, and to power. There are some philosophies, even religions, in the world that will look at these inclinations of fallen man to accumulate everything he he can, to get as much pleasure as he can, and to get as much power as he can. And certain philosophies and religions will encourage that. Say, yes, go for it. And even though it's not an articulated philosophy in our culture, that really is the attitude of of our society and culture. And in contrast to this, our Lord exemplifies poverty, chastity, obedience, and by his example, he exhorts all of us to live the same, according to our state in life. If you are Carthusians, can be lived one way, Dominican another way, Franciscan, parish priest, whatever else. But we are all called to live these where we are. The Church says in Vatican II that in speaking of the Church's holiness and how that, the holiness of the Church is supposed to appear before the world, that's what evangelizes. We hear all this talk about the new evangelization. What evangelizes is holiness. That's what the world desires and deserves to see. And so Vatican II says, in a very special way, this holiness appears in the practice of the councils, customarily called evangelical. This practice of the councils, under the impulsion of the Holy Spirit, undertaken by many Christians, either privately or in a church-approved condition or state of life, gives and must give in the world an outstanding witness. An example of this same holiness. That holiness lived in love for one another. And so before we get to the first let me just some rules that apply for all of them. There is an element in each one of detachment and attachment. We detach from certain legitimate goods. Though we can tend to use as substitutes for self-giving, and we can tend to use as ways of self-medicating. We can use these things as means of self-autonomy in order to control. And so we need to detach from them. And we detach from them in order to attach to the things of God. And so these are meant to rid us from, or what hinders us from growing in charity, and to make us more dependent on our Lord. We don't like that, do we? To be more dependent. We just celebrated our Independence Day, and here's Father talking about dependence. Our faith, to grow in, in faith, to grow in charity, means to become increasingly dependent on our Lord. And there's a hierarchy to the evangelical councils. Traditionally, they're listed as poverty, chastity, and obedience because th- that listing describes the progression from what is external to what is most interior. What is external, our possessions, poverty. And then it progresses to our bodies, chastity. And then that most interior part of us, our will, obedience. And so it's a progression of more and more dependence on our Lord and more and more getting rid of what hinders our self-giving. I should also mention desires. You know, in the Eastern religions, the goal is really to kind of get rid of desires and to reach the state where you don't desire anything. That's just unrealistic. (laughs) That's just untrue to the human person. God has placed certain desires within us, and he has done so for good reason. But because of sin, those desires uh, can become disordered, or they they get off track. The evangelical council sort of brings them back into line, tames them, so that we are given the grace of good desires, so that what we desire is in accord with what our Lord desires for us. And so first is the counsel of poverty. You know, when, when Mother Teresa died, I'll never forget, uh, I was on a long drive and I was listening to national public radio, and they had — and only NPR would do this they had a point counterpoint on Mother Teresa. Uh, Christopher Hitchens took, of course, you know, the, the position that Mother Teresa was, was actually a very bad person. And Cardinal Keeler took the controversial position that all things considered, in the grand scheme of things, she wasn't that bad. Uh, his was a very easy, you know, position to take. But Christopher Hitchens did, he was fascinating to listen to because he actually had a very good point. He just had the wrong conclusion about it. And he observed how Mother Teresa, and this is why he didn't like her, she was not interested in, in economic reform or reform of society or any big reform like that. He, she was interested as being as poor as the ones that she served. And he was absolutely right. Mother Teresa was not just serving the poorest of the poor, she was striving to be poor at the same time. He was right on the money. The only problem is he thought that was a bad thing. The world sees poverty as just something to be eliminated. And of course, there are certain forms of abject poverty that we should strive to, to remedy. But we see poverty actually as a virtue, as something to be cultivated, to be embraced, not a, the poverty of living in squalor or a, a, the kind of poverty that offends human dignity, but that kind of poverty that is detachment and freedom from the possessions of this world. And all three of the councils can be understood through this lens. We detach ourselves from possessions and then actually from our bodies and detach ourselves finally from our will. The created world is good. Possessions are fine and good in their proper place. But we know that in the fallen world, they can get out of their proper place pretty quickly. There's a good instinct that couples have, that parents have. Wives and mothers, to, to responding to that desire to receive life and to nurture life, uh, it's, it's good to you know, have a home, right? uh, to furnish the home, to have the home be someplace that is pleasing and, and nice to be. Uh, and that requires private property and it requires owning things. There's nothing wrong with that, that's good. Husbands and fathers should have that noble and good desire to, pr- to provide and to protect to give their wives and their children what is necessary and not necess- not just what is necessary in a sort of a stingy way but what is necessary for them to live and to live a noble life in this world and to grow in character and virtue but these desires because of sin can become distorted and instead, and so instead of just kind of providing a good home, there can creep in, to, uh, to a, perhaps a mother's mind or a wife's mind, uh, the, the need for more, or <laughs> why don't I have as much as the person next door, or yes, what I have is good, but boy, I could have something even better. And these desires have a way of. St- kind of snaking their way around our hearts. And husbands, of course, and fathers can fall into the trap of just wanting more things. And we we like gadgets, right? Uh, And just more things for the man cave, right? Nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But then it becomes a distraction. And the danger of all of this is that these possessions, or the desire for them, can gradually, but almost certainly, direct attention away from persons and just to things. And that's the danger we always run into. In general, it's, it's the placing of comfort, and perhaps even luxury, ahead of the family being together a home, a good income, clothes, food, all of those things are good and necessary, but we know, especially in our culture, how they can distract from what is more necessary, which is persons and relationships. And I know what you're thinking. Father, I wish I had more things to distract me. That that would kind of be nice. Maybe a, a better income or a bigger home And perhaps, and perhaps the Lord desires that for you. But there's always that danger of these things supplanting the more important ones. And we see this also in parents confusing what their children need and what their children want. Or rather, what they want for their children. Uh, It is good to give children what they need. But it's not good to give children whatever they want. And it's not good to give children just what is necessary to keep them quiet. So poverty is the weapon by which we do two things. First, we fight against the disordered desire for more things. And we fight against that attachment to things. There's no more certain way of taming that desire and and disciplining that desire than than to part with some of what we have, or to forgo a purchase which we could actually afford. And second, by doing that, we free ourselves more for service of God and neighbor. How many people are inattentive to those around them because of the possessions that they have? Because of what's in their hand, The, the screen in the hand, keeping them from being attentive? And right before, I, uh, right before I, I, I came here, somebody sent me a, a piece, uh, some research showing that, that those who combine their incomes, those couples that combine their incomes, are less likely to get divorced. It's one of those sort of discoveries of research um, that didn't really need research, did it? A friend of mine wrote years ago, you can't be one flesh if you refuse to be one wallet. (laughs) And so notice that there's a certain poverty already written into marriage, isn't there? That you have to forego this whole sense of mine, because it's no longer yours in the singular, but only yours in the plural. No longer mine, but ours. Uh, But that sense of mine can, again, insert itself ever so subtly into heart and mind. It's not a word that parents really like to hear their their toddlers saying a lot, is it? Uh, Children learn the virtue of justice first. It's the first virtue they learn. But only as regards their own right to private property. So, if parents don't like that to hear that from their children, neither should they want that in their own vocabulary. So, how do we do this? There should be certain disciplines, that, uh, certain practices in your lives that, uh, to examine this point regularly. Uh, perhaps a monthly assessment of what you're spending. Maybe you need to do that already just, just to, to watch the income. Good. But if you're not in the habit of that, it is a good habit to start a monthly sit-down and looking at finances. When I was first ordained, I gave this issue short shrift when I was doing marriage prep. And I very quickly realized how money can become a really, uh, it can become an aggravating factor in a couple's relationship. And so a monthly sit-down to discuss these things is not necessarily always going to be some joyful, pleasant experience, but it is a good way to examine what is, what is coming between us. Are you spending too much beyond your means unnecessarily? Even if it is within your means, are you spending unnecessarily? One of the first and best things children can be taught is the capacity to go without. Because poverty is always the first step in the spiritual life and in the reforms of the church throughout the centuries, it's always been poverty that's been first. Perhaps an annual sort of cleaning of the house, getting rid of things that aren't necessary. We, we priests are typically moved, you know, every, every so often. It's kind of nice because then, you know, you have to. just to make moving easier. Get rid of the book that's been sitting there for years, and you're going to read it someday, but not really. It can go. Or the clothes that have not been worn for ages. They can go, even if you think that someday you'll fit into them again. (laughs) Examine your giving to the church and to other charities. Tithing. It is one of the most important principles for, uh, for our faith. We would all agree that the spiritual life is more important than possessions, but how do we make that real? We make it real by our giving. We make it concrete by our giving. And the Sabbath, which may not seem to be immediately related to this, but of course, the Sabbath is originally you know, commanded Uh, because the Israelites were forced to work all the time just to survive. And the Sabbath is a command to rest and trust that God will provide. And so examine the Sabbath rest. Perhaps no email, no business on the Sabbath, a way of trusting. Do that as, as much as you can without getting fired. But observing the Sabbath, because that is a way of detaching from the pace of the world and attaching to God's schedule. And let me press this point of poverty a little further, or deeper. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The purpose of our poverty, of that that spirit of simplicity that should animate all of us, is to go deeper in our spiritual lives and to realize and to live a poverty of spirit. At the core of freedom and self-giving is the acknowledgment of one's own poverty and then even more, making oneself poor. So being poor means acknowledging our poverty, our lack of talents, our lack of gifts, of ability, of competence, our insufficiency. None of you is capable of living marriage. None of you. This is a gift of grace. And so poverty of spirit means being at peace with the acknowledgement of that incapacity, not becoming discouraged, frustrated, angry, or peevish, when you find yourself limited in, in your abilities, in your ability to live marriage most of all, when you run into your limitations as a husband or father, or as a wife, or mother, that's just a reminder of your poverty of spirit an occasion to thank God for His grace to ask Him to supply that grace more. And then poverty also should point to making oneself poor in self-giving. You are to give yourselves to one another. You you, you can't give yourself and at the same time hold on to yourself. You are to give yourself and and in that sense make yourself poor. And, And we know that, of course, In giving ourselves, and only in giving ourselves, we find ourselves and we become more fulfilled. It is only by that voluntary making of ourselves poor and giving ourselves that we can actually realize uh, the purpose of marriage and our own fulfillment. Close just by mentioning the poverty of Joseph and Mary. When they present our Lord in the temple, Saint Luke makes mention of the sacrifice that they bring, which is uh, the sacrifice of the poor. It's a sacrifice that was prescribed for those who could not afford to bring to to sacrifice a lamb. And so, it's an indication to us that they were not among the wealthy; they were poor. Not poor in an undignified sense, but poor in the sense of, in the, in the world's estimation. But we find in them no frustration or anger about that. We find in them no, no lack of dignity. And even more, what we find in Joseph and Mary is a making, they make themselves poor. Uh, Joseph is at peace with his poverty, that he is not equal to his wife. He is at peace with his poverty. He's not equal to his son. His incapacity to provide for them and his need to rely on God the Father. He's not angry, upset, or resentful about it. He is content to have that poverty of spirit and to rely more on the grace of God. And Our Lady, of course, is the one who is poor in the sense that... She is, as Carol Hauslander describes her, that, that chalice, that empty chalice waiting to be filled. She empties herself. She, she is free from all other riches precisely so that she can be enriched first by God's grace and then by the conception of God's own Son. And so we see in them already sign of this evangelical council of poverty and its blessing for married life. There are no things to get in the way of persons, but it was Joseph and Mary and that relationship, it was in the context of that poor marriage that our Lord is born himself poor. So as he is here under this poor, this poor form of bread, not in any big noble way, but in the simple form of bread ask him to stir up in our hearts this appreciation for poverty of spirit, for that simplicity of life that we are all called to live. That we can come to resemble him more and more as he is here before us in the Eucharist, and so that you as couples can more and more come to resemble Joseph and Mary in their attention to one another, to their marriage, to their child, and not allowing the things of the world to interfere.